Welcome to the podcast, Walking You Through the ICU. I'm Kaylee Dayton, an ICU nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. This is your guide to helping your loved one survive and thrive during and after critical illness. This is not medical advice, but medical information. Please collaborate with your wonderful ICU team to apply this information as appropriate for your loved one. If you are looking for tools for advocacy specific to your loved one's journey, please book a counseling session with me at www.daytoniceuconsulting.com. The podcast blog with studies, pictures, videos, and resources related to these episodes are found on the website as well. Okay, let's talk about some hard and important things, starting with delirium. Your loved one is at risk of developing ICU delirium. One of your most important tasks is to protect your loved one from delirium. To do so, you need to understand what it is. Delirium is actually acute brain failure. What does that mean? It means the brain is suddenly not functioning properly. It is an organ failure. What are the signs of delirium? How do you know if your loved one is having brain failure? I suspect that you, as the person who knows them the best, will detect delirium sooner than anyone else. There are two different types of delirium. Hypoactive, which is when they won't wake up, uh, they may be confused, profoundly lethargic, fall asleep as soon as they wake up, or even totally unresponsive to your yelling and shaking. Or there can be hyperactive delirium, which is when they are confused, have short attention span, sudden mood swings, agitation, combativeness, disorderly thinking, indirectable, and so on. Patients can swing between the two types of delirium and have anything in between. When they are not themselves, you will know, usually. Please understand that though this happens in up to 81% of ICU patients, it is actually an emergency and can be life-threatening. In truth, delirium increases their chances of dying in the hospital by two times and triples their chances of dying six months after discharge. Even after that, they're still at a higher risk of dying one year after discharge. For every one day of delirium, there is a 10% increased risk in dying. Patients with the delirium are likely to spend far more time in the ICU and hospital, as well as discharge to a care facility instead of home after the hospital. So what is causing this and what is going on to make your loved one become a different person or not even recognize you? Uh, lots of things. There can be numerous causes of delirium that can be lined in the acronym delirium, D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M. It can be a cute little diagram on the blog. D is for drugs. This can be street drugs, withdrawing from drugs, or can be drugs given in the ICU. Next episode, we will dive into sedation, but for now, please know that this is a huge risk factor and often avoidable. This is where you come in to advocate for the avoidance of drugs that cause delirium. Again, next episode, we'll dive deep into that. E is for ears and eyes, sensory deficits. 
If your loved one has hearing aids or glasses, make sure they're with them and on. Not being able to hear or see well in the ICU can really lead the brain to fail while it's already under so much stress. L is for low oxygen saturations. Anytime the lungs are struggling and the body isn't getting enough oxygen, or there is something preventing adequate blood flow, like a heart attack or blood clots, when the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, it can get injured and fail. I is for infection. When the body is fighting an infection, it can be experiencing a significant inflammatory response, which can really impact the brain function. There is a later episode about sepsis that we will explain more about this. Just know that if your loved one is fighting an infection, it's game time for you. Be leery of sedation and be ready to implement the prevention strategies we're about to discuss. Infection should have you on edge, ready to fight for your loved one's brain. R is for retention of urine or stool. If your loved one is constipated, be concerned. This can affect their brain. I is for ictal state. If your loved one is having seizures, they are at risk of being delirious afterward. Be aware of how the ICU team responds to their agitation and confusion. Help your loved ones stay calm and safe if they come out of a seizure lost and confused. Avoid sedation if they are not having active seizures. We will discuss this more. U is for underhydration and undernourishment. Dehydration and malnourishment are going to affect your loved, loved one's brain function. To be honest, we're pretty good about giving fluids in the hospital, but can be really behind at making sure patients have adequate nutrition. Don't hesitate to request a consultation with the ICU registered dietitian. M is for metabolic derangements. So if their sodium or glucose levels and such are off, this will affect their brain. If this happens, hang with them, keep them safe and utilize tools for delirium that I'll share. Giving sedatives during these episodes or causes will not fix delirium, but will prolong it. Keep them safe while the team addresses the metabolic problems. And then S can be for subdural hematoma. When there's bleeding and swelling in the brain, the stress and pressure can obviously affect it. Okay. So we went through deliriums. That was a lot of information. Clearly there are many things we cannot control in the ICU. There is no magical wand to make many of those causes of delirium to go away. Yet how we prevent and respond to delirium will greatly impact their survival and quality of life after this hospitalization. Patients that suffer delirium are at high risk of having post-ICU PTSD, and post-ICU dementia. When patients are agitated, thrashing, and difficult to control during delirium, we as the ICU community are inclined to give them sedation. It makes them quiet. They look more comfortable. They seem safer. We are culturally trained to believe that that is the most humane approach. The problem is, that we're giving something that causes the problem that they're having, which is acute brain failure. If you go to an ICU survivor page, most of what they are discussing is the psychological trauma they experienced in delirium, often 
under medically induced comas. While doing research for the podcasts, I asked survivors to leave a Google voicemail sharing what they experienced under sedation. I didn't say anything about hallucinations or delirium. I just asked what they experienced in their medically induced comas. What they shared is found in episode four of my other podcast, Walking Home from the ICU. If you want survivor perspective of what it is like in medically induced comas and in delirium, I invite you to listen to episodes three, four, seven, 78, 87, and 92. The following is a clip from one of the survivors. My hallucinations while under sedation were mostly nightmares revolving around suffering, abandonment, and general mayhem. Some of the nightmares were recurring. These are just a few examples that I can recall with clarity during my four-week coma. One nightmare which troubled me for a long time after recovering was the kidnapping of my two young daughters. I would get close to finding them, only to discover they had been moved on, and I would always be one step behind. The feeling of despair and hopelessness in this nightmare felt so real. When they visited me in the ICU on the day after waking from the coma, I was in tears seeing them walking towards my bed. I still clearly remember them asking their mother why I was crying. In another scenario, I was at a hospital when gunmen started attacking the building and I remember running in fear and physically feeling the bullets hitting me as they fired their guns. When I awoke from the coma, I thought I was there because I'd been shot. I often wonder if the physical feeling of the bullets entering my body was caused by the procedures being performed on me while in the coma, like being put on ECMO, having chest drains inserted, the tracheostomy, blood draws, etc. I also recall the feeling of solitude and isolation in what I can only describe as a white space of nothingness. I would hear voices that were familiar to me, but I couldn't place who it was talking, and wherever I looked, I couldn't see anyone, as the voice was always behind me and out of sight. This would lead to an overwhelming sense of frustration, agitation, and loneliness that seemed tangible. Looking back, I believe I was hearing my parents children or partner talking to me. This tells me that there is a certain level of consciousness while in the coma, but the brain is unable to correctly interpret events in the surrounding environment. I share this difficult insight with you so that you understand that the agitation and anxiety is likely because they are experiencing something deeply terrifying. I say experiencing because imagining or having hallucinations or delusions is not appropriate terminology here. Where they are is real to them. The scenarios, the people, the feelings, terror, pain, and so on are more real to them than the room you're looking at right now. This is why it causes PTSD. They have sincerely lived this alternative reality and suffered the stress, fear, and trauma of such events. This can affect how they sleep, cope, respond to normal life after the ICU. It's like bringing home a war veteran. Debilitating depression, anxiety, and panic attacks are often the result of ICU 
delirium. The more trauma they had before the ICU, the higher risk they run of having post-ICU PTSD. If you want to hear what it is like to live with post-ICU PTSD from delirium during sedation in the ICU, listen to episodes eight and 50 through 52 of the other podcast. The more delirium is prevented and shortened, the better chance they have of going home the same person that came in. Delirium as acute brain failure can cause long-term damage that changes how the brain works. Permanent cognitive impairments called post-ICU dementia can result from delirium. This can mean the ability to process and remember information is impaired, response time is delayed, fine motor skills are impacted, attention is disrupted, and executive function is altered for years, if not forever, after the ICU. Delirium survivors have explained to me that this has taken away their ability to drive, work, read, and enjoy certain interests they loved before the ICU. This gravely impacts their careers and can lead to early retirement. Interpersonal relationships are changed as their capacity and even identity is taken away from them and new stressors resulting from their disability. You can hear survivors share what living with post-ICU dementia is like in episode six of the other podcast. Links to these episodes are provided in the blog post. I tell you this because I deeply care and respect your right to know. I also sincerely believe you can do a lot to prevent and treat delirium. There is no medication for delirium. The only way to prevent and treat it is avoiding medication that causes it. We'll discuss sedation next episode, sleep, family, and mobility. Let's talk about those in the context of what you can do. First, sleep. Everyone has to sleep. You need to sleep so that you can help your loved one. They need to sleep to keep their brains straight, especially at night. You know your loved one. You know how they sleep. Do they use a certain pillow, blanket, white noise? Do they like it hot, cold? Do they need a foot massage or relaxation techniques to prepare to sleep? Do they use a medication for sleep at home? Have they ever responded poorly to sleep aids in the past? Do they have certain rituals they do before bed, like listening to a book, washing their face in a certain way, or brushing their hair? Whatever idiosyncrasies belong to their unique nighttime rituals, try to keep it as normal as if they were home. Bring that lavender lotion, the white noise machine, the blanket, give that foot massage. Talk with the ICU team about finding ways to do all of their cares at once. It's the ICU, so things can change, emergencies happen, and a quiet night can be impossible sometimes. Yet there are things we can do if a patient is a little more stable to give them the best chance possible for sleep. If they need a bath, two o'clock in the morning is not an acceptable time for that. Do it at nine or 10 if it has to be done on the night shift. Offer to help if they are overwhelmed at that time. Ask what labs need to be drawn in the morning and if they can wait until 7 a.m. instead of 4 a.m. Ask what medications are scheduled during the night and if they can be given earlier or later to allow a longer window of sleep. 
during rounds or interactions with the intensivist, NP or PA, ask if they think melatonin is an appropriate medication for them to receive at night. If they're not getting sleep, make the team aware and see if they want to order light sleeping medication, but not benzodiazepines or other sedatives that cause delirium. In the pre-COVID times, the awake and walking ICU did not have visiting hours. Outside of COVID, there is rarely a time in which families should not be there. In general, only sterile procedures or hostile situations that families have created should families be kicked out of the ICU. If allowed, have someone stay with your loved one. If you are the only one involved in their hospitalization and you are not the kind to be able to sleep in the recliner in the room, don't torture yourself and run yourself ragged. Go home and sleep at night. I have seen family members develop their own version of ICU delirium after fragmented sleep during miserable nights. I have experienced it myself during my daughter's hospitalizations. I stay and I understand if you stay overnight as well. I also support that if staying overnight is not going to allow you to have proper self-care, you need to go home. Your loved one needs you to keep yourself together right now. Figure out what will be functional and work for you guys to allow for sleep for everyone. This leads me to the point about family as an intervention for delirium. You are one of the most powerful tools to keep them grounded in reality. Imagine when their brain is under so much stress, pain, infection, disrupted sleep, and in a totally unfamiliar and scary setting, you are what is familiar, safe, and comforting. You can help protect them from unnecessary sedation, help them sleep, and help them mobilize with the ICU team. A recent study showed that family presence for more than two hours a day decreased the risk of delirium by 88%. If they are experiencing delirium, you can be the safe person to reorient them, tell them where they are and what's going on. You can help keep them safe in bed and keep their lines and tubes in. You can help distract them with activities, conversations, or diversions that you know that they will like and keep them engaged with reality and mentally stimulated. You can help them communicate and have their needs known and met. We will discuss that more in the communication episode. But being isolated alone in the same room for days to weeks or separated from human connection in a medically induced coma will make the, anyone lose their minds. You can keep them going. You can give them reason to keep fighting to live. In the awakened walking ICU, there was a COVID patient that suffered the universal quote, COVID isolation while awake on the ventilator. He was not allowed to have family with him. His lungs became so sick that he struggled to maintain um, adequate oxygen to his body, even on the highest ventilator support. Per difficult hospital policy, family was not allowed to be with him unless he was dying. My colleague really thought he was going to pass away. The family was allowed to come in and say their goodbyes. My colleague left that shift assuming it was the last time she would see him. She came back a few days later to find him off the ventilator and breathing on his own and stable. She was shocked. She said to him, I'm so happy you're still here. We were so convinced you were dying that we even brought your family in. And he said, quote, I needed them. 
I needed my family. They kept me here, unquote. There is no way to physiologically explain how his lungs improved so quickly over such a short amount of time, but he was convinced, and I'm convinced, that it was his family. I'm not sure what I can say about these visiting hours that are happening during COVID. Honestly, I hate them. I think they're unethical, dated, and entirely unhelpful. I will also say that the patient care and outcomes usually improved when family is present. You are part of the ICU team. If it was my loved one, I would be dead set on being present for more than a few hours a day. If my loved one had delirium and I was only allowed to be there briefly, I would be bringing in the research into the conversation. I would insist that the ICU team cannot treat this acute brain failure without family present. It is not unreasonable that, to suggest that a life-threatening condition such as delirium is not being treated when family is locked out of the ICU. Removing family is failing to practice evidence-based medicine. So that's probably as much as I can publicly say. Lastly, but not least, mobility. We'll dive deep into this into another episode, but mobility is a life-saving intervention in the ICU. There are very few exceptions in which a patient cannot and should not be mobilized. Again, very few. We'll talk later about what is normal and cultural in the ICU versus what is best practice. Just know that mobility not only helps the physical function, but the brain as well. One recent study showed that mobility decreased the odds of delirium by 95%. Sitting in a chair during the day, standing, walking, doing squats, trying to keep the brain and body as connected and engaged during the day is powerful at preventing and treating delirium. Make sure your loved one has a physical and occupational therapy consultation, even and especially if they're on the ventilator. This will help them sleep better and longer at night, prevent and treat anxiety and agitation, and decrease their time in the ICU and hospital, among many things. Keep them active, even if that means armbands, leg bikes, leg raises, whatever exercises in the bed and chair that you can support them in, even when the nurse and therapist are unavailable. You can help tremendously by keeping them moving. One study showed that walking at night improved sleep and prevented delirium in the ICU. Make that part of the night routine with your ICU team. In the end, ICU delirium is a life-threatening condition that can result in patients being twice as likely to die. Your presence at the bedside is an evidence-based treatment for this acute brain failure. Family presence can decrease the risk of delirium by 88%. If you are not at the bedside, acute brain failure is not being prevented or treated with all the effective tools possible. Okay, that was enough for one episode. Next episode, we'll talk more about some of the cultural and educational barriers among ICU clinicians that make delirium prevention and treatment so difficult. I share this with you so that you are prepared to be proactive right away. 
This is one of your most important tasks for your loved one. Prevent and treat delirium. Good luck. I've attached some great resources as well as a list of episodes and interviews dedicated to delirium that are on my other podcast, all in the blog. I'm here for you. Keep listening. If you want to help make this life-saving information available to others, please leave a review for the podcast, share it with others, and share the clinician podcast with your ICU team. Thanks for being a part of the future of critical care medicine.